Hello. You are listening to the Grieving Parents Sharing Hope podcast. We are here to walk with parents on their unwanted journey of child loss, guiding them to a place of hope, light, and purpose, not in spite of their child's death, but as a way to honor his or her life. And now, here is your host, author, speaker, and bereaved parent, Laura Deal. Welcome to our first interview that we have on our Grieving Parents Sharing Hope podcast here. We have R. Glenn Kelly, or Ron, to his friends. He lost his 16-year-old son and his only child in 2013 to a rare congenital heart defect. Today, he is the published author of several grief support groups, a grief keynote and workshop presenter, motivational growth speaker, and a business grief coach. He has discussed grief healing on CBS television, Trinity Broadcast Network, New York Cable TV, broadcast radio programs, universities, hospitals, and in such big businesses like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola. He has served as an executive board of directors member with the Bereaved Parents of the USA, some people know it as BPUSA, and as a board of advisors member with Le Bonheur, you might need to correct me on that one, Ron, Children's <laughs> Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where his dear child, his son, Jonathan passed away. First and foremost, however, today Ron remains the loving father of his late son, Jonathan Taylor Kelly. And Ron, I am just so excited to have you as our first guest on the podcast. So welcome. Well, I am absolutely honored to be here. Thank you for the welcome. And and to be a a guest on here is is phenomenal. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I want to start out by asking you to tell us about your son, Jonathan, and his loss. Tell us his story, your story. Oh, well, thank you, especially for giving me the opportunity. John was born in, in 1997 with a, a rare, but, but certainly not rare enough heart condition known as hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which long and short means that the, the left side of his, the two left chambers in his heart failed to develop in the womb. And the day he was born, they handed him to his mother and I and said, he's probably not going to make it through the night, his very mm-hmm. first night on earth. And I think he and God had different plans. Um, he didn't make it to his first night. As a matter of fact, we were introduced to an amazing cardiothoracic or pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon who uh, did a procedure on John. It, it, it included some extensive and, and very excruciating open heart surgeries. He had three open heart surgeries before he was even the age of two, but all in all, to reconstruct his heart, to, to function properly on just John had a prognosis for a full life. He had some limitations growing up. And we knew that there would be medical interventions to come in the future because anytime there's reconstructive work done on the heart as an infant, it's not going to grow with you. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, sure. So we knew that there'd be interventions, but his prognosis was for a relatively normal and full life. Uh, he thrived. He had a wonderful childhood, loved golf, loved friends. For some reason, I think it was probably the the, the near-death experiences as a, a newborn and all the uh, operations and surgeries he had, but he was a Pied Piper of other children. We had a house full of kids all the time. It was just simply amazing. But unfortunately, and I'll, I'll give you the air quotes if you don't mind, uh, mm-hmm. we went in for a, a relatively routine uh, exploratory heart catheterization when he was 16 years of age, just to, to, to go up and take a peek around his heart and see what might be next. And the procedure went well, but unfortunately, when he came out and he was in the recovery room, his heart failed and, and they could not bring him back. I say it's, it's a blessing to me and I hope others see it this way, but I was able to hold my child as he took his final breath here on earth before he passed over to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just an amazing child. 
Isn't that interesting? Because Becca, our daughter, she had heart problems uh, caused by chemo when she was three years old and it did heart damage. And so it plagued her for the last 10 years of her life. But it was Mm -hmm. the same thing. She was in for what was a routine Lasix diuretic fluid overload. And for her, it was so normal to be in the hospital for that. And Mm -hmm. her heart gave out and they couldn't bring her back. So... Yeah, I had uh, and people say that uh, I I don't want anybody to think that I was going for a lawsuit, but I spent thousands of dollars on just an independent board of of surgeons uh, to pour over Jonathan's medical records, especially the the surgery. And I got, uh, believe it or not, what I consider wonderful news, which was it was his time. Nothing Uh, had gone wrong. There was nothing that that could have been done relatively known that could have stopped him from passing. And that brought me a little bit of comfort. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Definitely. It was his time. And, and sometimes we have to give it to the Lord and just say it was, it was his time. Right. And stop putting the blame on other people or ourselves. We can torture ourselves, can't we? With the what ifs yeah. and if onlys and oh my goodness. We go through so much false guilt and false anger. And I call it that. It is false. Of course, he passed away in a hospital. So I was naturally angry with the hospital for mm-hmm. some time. And after I'd gotten rid of that false anger, I, I sat on the board of that very, that's Labonner Children's Hospital that you talked about okay. in the opening. Um, I went back and sat on the board of advisors for the very hospital where my child lost his wow. life. Wow. So you let go of the false guilt and the false anger and it frees you up so much. You just have to be able to identify what is false. Yes. And, and then choose to accept that. Sure. Because mm-hmm. anger Anger is a natural, normal response to grief. If, if the anger is targeted towards something that, that you should be angry at, and you're not, uh, keep in mind, you're not harming yourself or others in your anger because anger is, is constructive. Look what, what uh, the, the mother of a young girl who died being struck by an intoxicated driver, she went on to form mad right. against drunk driving because of her anger, right. because of the anger of what happened. And that's constructive anger and it's normal. Right, right. Well, I'm going to turn a corner here because the first time I met you, it was at a BPUSA conference. And I don't know if you remember it, but we were in a, like a break room type thing. And we had a conversation about how you offer grief coaching to businesses and organizational leaders. And that really fascinated me because Dave and I have talked about that. Mm-hmm. So can you explain that and tell, tell us what that's all about? Absolutely. And, and I do remember the conversation. And fortunately, I've been able to dive in quite a bit more since that time over the years have passed. But, you know, I, if you go back and just look some of the statistics that are out there, you look at 4 million active U.S. employees, 4 million active U.S. employees every year will lose a loved one. That's huge. And that's 4 million people in the workplace. Mm. So, I mean, you've got staggering statistics right there by itself. And we look at even what some of the psychologists will tell you that, and I'll go off some stuff that people really have to give a little thought to, but 10 to 20% of all newly bereaved will at least wind up with some kind of complicated grief. And if we look at those 4 million employees that are newly bereaved every year, then that means 400 to 600,000 could be returning to work all too quickly because we know the average bereavement leave across the United States is only three days of bereavement Uh leave will be returning to work with some form of complicated grief, which carries with it the potential for both physical and mental impairments. So if, if I were to run down all of the stats for you, I'll leave it at this, and this is what I hit the businessmen with. The ultimate stat is that American businesses are losing over $100 billion every year in annual revenue due to the impacts of grief in the workplace. 
Wow. And they're indifferent to it. And in some cases, they're even hostile towards it. That's crazy because usually the, crazy. The, the bottom dollar is what gets their attention. It, it is. And that's why when I go and I speak with businesses, I'm, I'm not as compassionate as when you and I do workshops with our uh -huh. fellow bereaved. I, because I know that the only way I'm going to get to them is through a return and to let them know, I'm talking to your wallet here. I, I, we have to be compassionate. You have to treat your employees with a great deal of compassion. But let's talk about the money. We talk about the hidden direct and indirect costs of grief in the workplace. And people say, well, can you give me an example of a, of a direct or indirect cost? And I say, well, let's look at absenteeism. Now, absenteeism in itself in a newly bereaved employee usually, me, usually equates to about 30 additional days beyond the bereavement leave, but 30 additional days of unscheduled leave in the first year after a loss. And they say, well, why is that? Why are they going to take 30 additional days of unscheduled leave? Well, it's because they don't feel comfortable in the workplace, mm -hmm. right? If we think about it, when the mind's in turmoil, it wants someplace safe and comfortable to, to process through the troubles. And if the workplace is a, a, an area that it doesn't perceive as being comfortable and safe, then you wake up one morning in the waves of grief and you're probably going to shelter at home that day, right? You're right. And not go to work. And that's just, you know, I think absenteeism workplace, if you look at the DOL figures, will show you that they're losing over $400 billion just in absenteeism alone. Not just from the bereaved, I'm sorry, but from mm -hmm. absenteeism itself. So the, the hidden costs are out there. They're obvious. Once you put them all together and show the impacts of grief in the workplace, it becomes apparent that we are still indifferent to it at work. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting because I had not thought of it from that direction. Now, I am blessed. I, I don't go out and work a job. My husband dealt with that. Uh, when mm -hmm. Becca died. But yeah, I mean, because I think about you wouldn't want feel like going to work. Well, why is that? Because you don't feel like it's a safe place. You don't feel like you're going to have your grief needs met there. You don't, I mean, you're going to get ignored. You're going to have people say stupid things. So yeah, very much so. That makes so much sense. Sure. And there are so many ways to combat that before uh, a bereaved individual returns to work and none of it costs a dime for an employer to do. It's, it's just a mindset and it's an awareness and understanding they don't have to become grief counselors. They mm. just have to have a basic awareness and understanding of what the newly bereaved will go through. And in some cases, it's not just the newly bereaved. It's, it's those of us that are actually sometimes years into our loss yes. that still have the influences of grief when we're at work. Yeah. How many parents do you know that they automatically, there's two days they take off of work every year. And that's mm -hmm. the child's birthday and the child's death date. Exactly. Exactly. And one thing that, that doesn't even show in the equation is, you know, I may, I may seem to develop well. I mean, from all aspects, people look at me and I've got my grief mask on and I go through a year at work where you think that I'm doing okay. And then I start getting into a little bit of complicated grief with myself. And you know that as well as I do. I mean, the second year can sometimes be just mm, as traumatic yes. as the first. So my performance starts to slip a little bit. Nobody recognizes that outside mm -hmm. of me. And normally I'm not going to recognize it either. But, you know, I, then comes counseling and then comes, you know, attempts to, to reprimand me and, and threaten me with my job. And eventually I'm fired because my performance has is, is gone downhill so much because I'm going through a little bit of a grief issue, you know, a year and a half out. Nobody equates that to our loss. Right. We just think I'm a poor employee. 
Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know Dave was given the typical three days off of work for the death of a close family member. And I, if I, you know, everything's always a fog there, but I'm pretty sure he had some vacation days. So he did her personal days. So he was able to take a few extra off, but not enough. No, um, no. We all know it's just not enough. And we both know parents who they've just plain lost their jobs because they couldn't function at work. Sure. So, um, you were talking about there are some things that can be done. So I'd really like to get into that, how to function in the workplace when we have that grief fog and, you know, what do we do? Well, and let's talk it from our side of it. Let's not talk about the employers for a little while because mm -hmm. we'll come back on that. But I mean, for us going back to work, I always say the first and foremost thing you have to do is take care of yourself. Nine times out of 10, we're, we're going back to work either because it's a requirement to go back to work or because we, you know, and, and like you said, I, I might be able to take my un you know, leave that I haven't taken before that I've got on the books. And maybe I can take some uh, unpaid leave off too. They're, they're pretty good to me at work. Take as much unlead time as you, you need to. But how much unpaid leave can I afford to take? Most of us live in this country paycheck to paycheck. It's right. just, it's fortunate way things are. So I'm going to have to go back to work. And when I do go back to work, just remember, be easy on yourself. Realize that it's not going to be the environment that it was at home. Even if you've transitioned from the initial stages of our loss when, you know, the, the, the grief seems to be relentless and unending and the emotions never seem to leave. We transition into a point where now it starts to come into waves and we can find a moment that it's not impacting us so much. So we think that we're okay. And then we go back to the workplace and we're hit with these waves again. And it's, you know, just not that same safe environment it was before. Realize it's going to happen, but realize too Unfortunately, we made that choice to go back to work. I know we need to work, but we went back to work and we said, okay, we're here. We're ready to go back to work. There's some things that we're going to have to do to, to understand. And you talked about some of the things that employees might say. Uh, and that's important because I'm a strong advocate of people are just goofy. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to say the bad things. Like uh, they're going to say, well, you know, you're young. At least you guys can have another child. Things that we want to tap them in the forehead and say, don't ever say that to me again, but we don't. Well, that was gracious. Uh, tap them on the forehead? Yes, but <laughs> we have to realize we, most of us come from a culture where we're raised to go up and comfort somebody who's in pain, right? Yes. And, and that generally means putting an arm around their shoulders and saying something in comfort. But mortality is a little different. We, we, we're not trained for that as the average Joe out there. We're not trained for the right things to say or not to say. Uh, we want to tell most people and anybody listening, realize the best thing to do is say nothing. Put a hand on my shoulder. Give me a smile. Let me know that you're there and, and walk away. You don't need to say a word. Right. Don't but, try to fix it because you can't. No, you can't. But, but my point to all this is, you know, they don't say things out of malice and we right. have to remember that. Um, it's not that they're ill-hearted. It's not that they're trying to say something that's going to upset you. They're, they're doing what they were trained since childhood to do, and that's to come up and give you comfort they just say the wrong things. They yeah, say, interesting. They, we can change our perspective on that, on how we see that. I think about a lot of times when someone will come up and try to compare their grief. Oh, I know how you feel because I lost my grandma and I cried for a week or whatever. And we can get very defensive. And it's like, how dare you compare the death of my child to your grandma or something like that. But the thing is, if we think about they're comparing their deepest loss, that's the deepest loss that they have ever felt. And so that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to get on a level with you to try to help comfort you. 
Yes, yes. So that's part of going back to work and understanding that you're going to be walking down the hallway and you're going to notice Bob sneak into the supply room just so that he does not come face to face with you. Okay. You've seen that before, right? People mm-hmm. that avoid you altogether yes. because oh, yeah. they don't know what to say. And, and again, mortality is a very uncomfortable thing. In, in my place, I lost a child. You know, there were other guys that I work with that, that had boys just like I did. Uh, to look at me, what goes through their mind? There but for the grace of God go I. And it, yes. it, it pains me to even think about, oh my gosh, well, we're, what if that were me and my child? As a matter of fact, I don't want to think about that. I'm right. going to avoid that thought altogether. Make sense? Yes. Yeah. And that's what they do. They, they avoid mortality because it's a very uncomfortable topic. So just realize that when you go back to work, it's going to be uncomfortable for them. They're going to get over your loss. You never will, but they're going to get over your loss very quickly. And the reason for that is, again, not out of malice, but they don't go home every night to a home that's completely different than it was before, right? Right. They're not going to go home every night, wake up in the morning, and before they get ready to go to work, wonder why they're not getting their child ready for school like they did the day before. Mm -hmm. Those things don't hit them like they hit you and I. Mm-hmm. And we were totally unaware until it happened to us. Bingo. Uh, we were there. For me anyway, personally. Yeah, we it were there. It makes them. me wonder how many hurtful or stupid or ignorant things I said to try to comfort someone when I knew nothing about what kind of grief they were going through. Right. And, and we can't go through training for that in advance. We could, but we won't. And unless we are mental health professionals, we're not going to get trained in advance. Uh, you and I are now well-trained, are we not? But yeah, <laughs> we would prefer not to be exactly, but we are. And the other part of that is it's part us because we're going to go back to work and we're going to put on a grief mask. Okay. And we're going to look like we're okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So what are other people thinking that we're okay? And, and we got over it. We're never going to get over it, but that's, right, that's the right. word we hear out there. You know, why aren't you over it yet? Or, he must be over it because he seems like he's back to, remote, to his old self again. Uh-huh. Uh, we put on that mask. It's not that we want to stand in a workplace and be emotional and, and bring everybody else down, but we do present airs that we're doing okay when yes. we're really not. Right, right. So there's true. a lot of things that we go back to work and, and we want to blame other people for, but it's just part of what's going on. It's part of our transition into where we're moving in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know Dave, he's an IT director. And mm-hmm. that first week that he went back to work, he has told me and a few other people about the story. He was on a conference call and the bigwig boss made some comment he thought was funny about having a funeral for the software they were getting rid of. And it just went like totally silent and people started texting him. I can't believe he just said that or whatever. And I guess Dave's response, he just said, no, I've had my fill of funerals for a while. And uh, other people were just like, oh, I can't believe he said that. I'm so sorry. But it's just people around us, their life didn't stop like our lives stopped. Right, right. And that's the whole point to that. It did not. And, and they're going to move on. Uh, and, and we're going to transition and, and we'll move on to a different point, but they're going to move on a lot faster than we are. We you just know, have to realize that. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was talking to someone just earlier today about our life has stopped. Our life has just come to a screeching halt and we can get so mm-hmm. angry at seeing people just walking down the street or people we know their lives go on and ours stopped. But when you think about it, that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Because that can give us hope that, okay, my life has stopped now, 
Right. But there's hope that it's not always going to be like this, that my life will go on also. Yes. And that's one thing that we, we find when we gather together with others that have been on the same path we are, but they're a little farther down the path, is that, you know, my life will go on and, and I'll get to the point where I will be able to be in peace and purpose once again. Um, I just have to transition to that point. I have to go through this. I, I wouldn't have this pain if I didn't have the love. And that's yeah. one thing I think we all need to take from it is, is the fact that we would not be in the deep parts of grief that we were had it not been for the unconditional love we felt for the one that we lost. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah. And that's the most important thing to take away is that I think if I can say anything about uh, the, the accolades that I always talk about with John is that for the first time in my life, he taught me what unconditional love truly was. Mm. People ask, you know, well, why do you do what you do? And you go out and you, you, you talk about grief all the time and you spend your life revolving around grief and bereavement. And I say, no, I don't. I, I spend my life talking about love. Oh, that's um, good. Giving away the unconditional love that I still give to him. He's still here with me. Uh, God sends him down to me all the time. Um, and I still give him unconditional love, but it's the unconditional love that we have here on earth that I haven't, I don't have any other outlet for it other than, yes with what you and I do. And yes. I'm not going to stop giving it now that I've learned what it's like. It's too much of a, 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 a too much of a drug, you know? <laughs> right. You but have- you know, real quick on, on the flip side, and, and I'll end it with this as far as I wanted to flip back on the employer side real quick. Yes, but yes I was going to do the same thing. Well, this is also for you and I when we go back to work and, and the listeners when they do go back to work is that I think it's imperative. And one of the first things employers ask me is what's the first thing that we should do uh, before somebody returns to work? And I always say, let their coworkers know what happened as much as you can within, you know, while respecting privacy, but let the coworkers know what happened. The biggest thing that does for us when we go back to work is that stops us from being approached 20 times a day by well-meaning yes. coworkers who are going to ask us what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because there are relationships that develop at work, even if they don't carry on beyond the workplace, you still care for me because I'm a coworker and we worked together for 10 years. Right. You still, yeah. You still have feelings and concerns about me. So even though, you know, we're not outside of the workplace buddies, when I get back to work, you're going to be concerned and you're going to want to know what happened. Mm-hmm. So I think it's imperative as much as privacy and, and respectfulness will allow, let the workplace know what happened. So when I come back to work, I don't have to repeat the story of John's loss 20 times. Right. 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 And, and keep in mind, you don't have to. If somebody approaches you for the fourth time and asks what happened, you can always say, I'll, I'll talk to you about it later. Exactly. Don't, don't, exactly. don't overdo yourself. But that takes the burden off of everybody if we just prepare the workplace in advance. That's good. Because when our child dies, we can't just scoop up all of our emotions and put them neat and tidy like on a box on a shelf, can we? No. And, and no. we have that problem with the workplace. And, and the workplace is always, hey, leave your personal life at home. But I don't know about you, I spent, I spent two decades as a successful business executive, and not once did I ever expect anybody to come to work any different than who they were at home. Mm. You come to work every day with your motivations and demotivations and problems, right. and Dave's being a pain in the, in the tush, and you, know, you come to work and you're all grumpy about it. That's who you are. We can't leave our private life at home. We're going right. to bring our group to the workplace. Yeah, and like Dave says, it's like grief just shatters into all of our boxes. You can't just leave it at home. It's, it's going to be nice. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I like that. 
Yeah. Is there something that can be given to a boss that explains the reality of what we're going through and how to help us? Uh, you've got your book, Grief in the Workplace. Is that something that would be good for that? Absolutely. I, I appreciate that plug. Uh, that's, that's actually what that, that <laughs> no, book I is for. that in there? <laughs> Bless your heart. Um, and I don't mean that in a Southern way. I really <laughs> yeah. The book is filled with things that are, are basically targeted only towards the employer and, and not towards a bereaved employee. The entire book, Grief in the Workplace, it's 170 pages of this is what you need to do. And it comes both from my experience as a bereaved employee and as a grieving father and as an executive in business. It doesn't cost a dime. This is just a way that, that things can be treated so that you can uncover all of those hidden costs that are out there. Take care of your employees. Gosh, we know that you know, over the past two decades, especially the the morale and welfare programs that have gone on in workplaces are just phenomenal now. I mean, oh. we take care of our employees. We've got this mindset now that they are our greatest asset. Yes. But nothing's changed in the bereavement part of it. Not a single thing has changed, has it? No, it doesn't seem Not like that it. I know of. Well, that's because when I go looking for a new employer, I go career shopping. I'm looking to see how much vacation time, what the pay is. I'm not, I'm not shopping bereavement right. leave. Exactly, exactly. So that's not what they put up on the front lines, but we need to teach them that by doing this, regardless of whether or not we advertise this for our best candidates and, and for retention of employees, this is something that does give us a lot of good branding out, not only in the industry, but in the community itself, that we take care of our employees in all manners. Yes. Now, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you about this, but if I remember correctly, you are one of them that has been working really hard for having bereaved parents added to the Family and Medical Leave Act. Yes. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Now, there are others that are working much harder on it. Let's just say I advocate it. I, I'm okay. in agreement with it. Uh, there's some wonderful people out there, and it's, it's on the floor right now. The bill is on the floor, so let's hope that it, it keeps getting traction. Yeah, when uh, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House, he's from our town, Janesville, Wisconsin. Good. And so we actually got to go see him. I gave him a book. We talked to him about that. And Good. yeah, doing whatever we can to be a voice because that's really important. And for those who may not be aware of what we're talking about, can you explain that? Sure. I, and, and let's put it, let's pull at the heartstrings first. And I don't mean to do this just to, to, to emphasize the, the sex part of it, but let, let's take a look at a woman who can take as much time away from work as she needs to with the protection of her job still being there when she's pregnant and giving birth to a child. However, if she loses that child, how much time is she given off? Mm -hmm. Three days. That's oh, and it. it's, it's every bit as much of an adjustment, if not more. Oh, it's, it's far yeah. more. I'm, it's, I'm it's, just being gracious. Yes. <laughs> and and I, you know, it's, it's, that sort of gets to people when you take a look and you realize that. And again, there are great companies out there that give a lot of time off. But, you know, under the FMLA, there's protection for the job there, too, which is very important. So, yeah, it's important that we get this. I, you know, there's part of me, and I hate to say it this way, there's part of me that, that didn't used to be an advocate for that because Department of Labor doesn't mandate time off for anything out there other than what's under FMLA right now. People don't realize that even your lunch at work is not mandated by the Department of Labor. These are benefits chosen to be given to you by your employer. Your vacation uh -huh. time is regulated under the federal government. You know, sick leave isn't. It's up to the employee whether or not, or the employer, whether or not they want to give you that benefit. And they do that so they can show you that they're the better company. Right. I wish they would do this on their own. Uh -huh. But again, mortality and, and death is just an uncomfortable topic that we don't talk about in board meetings and uh, business planning sessions, we don't talk about death. It's too uncomfortable. 
Right. Right. Unfortunately. So yeah, we're, we're hoping that if the employers won't do it themselves, then let's go ahead and put it under FMLA and, and just make right. sure that when you it's lose covered. a child, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got the time and the protection of, of having your job still be there. Yes. When you come back. Yes. Yeah, I think that's very important. It is. Yeah. So your first book, I think I have it correctly, is the award-winning Sometimes I Cry in the Shower. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So can you tell us why you wrote that book and what it's about? Yeah, because for the first six months after John passed, I did the typical guy thing. I, I basically just wallowed myself in complicated grief. I was completely avoiding his loss. Uh, you know, I would do the typical thing that you can visualize that, you know, I would walk by his picture on the wall and not look at it. I would walk by his bedroom door and pretend it wasn't there. I would go back to work uh, as a guy, you know, we as guys, we like to control things. And when I went back to work, I was in charge. I could control everything at work. I had no control over somebody taking my child's life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted control. So this went on for six months of me basically not grieving my child purposely and going to work and just avoiding it as much as I could. And then I wallowed in the fact that, you know, in my past, I had been a former Marine and I'd been a cop and a federal agent before I got into private business. And, you know, those were my identities of who I had been. And I left those identities behind, but I had never had any intention on leaving the identity of being a father behind, right. you know? But I had to warn, especially those that are like me that are, you know, parents of just a single child that has passed away. Am I still a parent? Am I still a father? And this was six months of my life that I basically went around with these thoughts in my mind and trying to avoid the grief and, and figure things out. And it comes down to the fact that I was simply lost. It was about six months after John, John passed that I was in the shower one morning, just you know, a normal morning getting ready for work. And, and uh, there had been a forecast for an inch of snow. And in the Mid-South, that was pretty traumatic. Cut <laughs> down everything. But in my mind, I wondered to myself, hmm, I wonder if John's school is going to be delayed today. I wonder if he's going to be late going in. And then I, I stopped in panic. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I thought I trained myself not to, to think about John anymore. I thought mm-hmm. I trained myself to not think he was coming in the back door when it opened just to get something to drink or when the dog jumped off the bed upstairs and it was John jumping around, I thought I'd gotten better than that. Here I am thinking about my son in the shower simply because it was going to snow outside. I locked myself in a position and thought, how can I do that? I've got, I've got to make myself stronger. And that's when I felt John. And I felt John that in a way that I've never felt him any, any time after that. I don't know how to explain it, but he was there with me in the shower. And the only thing I could do was really just, look into the shower spray and say, hi, baby. And he talked back to me. It wasn't anything you could hear. I could feel it inside of me. The words reverberated inside. And the only thing he said to me at first was, how dare you? And I thought for a second, I just really stood still. And he said it again, how dare you not grieve me? How dare you not think that you're still my father? Hmm. And the long and short of it at that point, I, I dropped down on my knees and I cried openly. I'd I'd cried before, of course, you know, at the funeral and places like that where I was overcome, but it was just weeping. Um, That was the first time that I openly cried right there on the shower floor. And I came to realize as I wanted to move forward, I went and I I sought out, trust me, I tried to find books out there for men who grieve. Uh, There's plenty of publications out there for, you know, bereavement as far as you know, mother's bereaving, loss of a child, loss of a husband. There was nothing out there that was directed towards men. 
So I was stuck kind of wanting to move myself forward without lying down on a mental health professional's couch because I'm a guy. That was beyond <laughs> me. You understand that, right? Mm. Um, I understand it now. I just didn't understand it then. I did right. not want to go see somebody, but I wanted to find a book and there was nothing out there. So I moved basically into studies of anthropology, uh, human emotions, things like that. Why am I doing the things that I do? Um, and not to be too long-winded about it, but I was having other issues once I started to want to grieve. Why wasn't I grieving the way that others around me were grieving? Why wasn't I crying as my wife was openly crying? Was right. there something wrong with me? Did I not love my child the way that I thought I loved my child because I wasn't debilitated with his loss? Um, and what I found out was it was me. That was who I am. That's who I'm pre-wired to be. And the most important thing, that meant that I was okay. Does yes. that make sense? Yes. So Definitely. I'd gotten to the point where I have done a lot of writing in my day. And sometimes that writing was proposal writing to earn other company owners millions and millions of dollars. And I thought, well, why can't I write about what I went through and the discoveries that I made? And I tell people it's so much more than a book about the loss of a child. It's it's the book of a discovery of what self-worth and self-esteem is. It's a discovery of, of because of John's loss, learning to live with a, a healthy ego versus a, what I used to call EGO, edging God out, hmm. EGO kind of ego. Hmm. To, to learn so much about yourself and to realize that, that there's a purpose in life and you can still live that life of peace and purpose even yes. beyond such a traumatic loss. Right. So right. Uh, because I went back many times to the shower and it's it just so funny, we get in the shower and we think of the most wonderful things in the shower, don't we? We come up with solutions, right. yeah. things we've been thinking about for years. And I think it's just because it's a place where the, the mind can let go. Mm -hmm. uh, I would go back to the shower quite a bit and I would go back to the shower and cry because that was the one place where I knew that even though it was okay for me to cry in front of others, I was still a guy. And, and right. as a guy, I wasn't going to do it. You know, right. but that, that was who I was and I was okay with being who I was. Mm -hmm. So my place to cry was where it was in the shower. Sure. So that was the title of my birth, my first book. Sometimes I cry in the shower. Makes total sense. So, I, I like mean, to uh, tell parents that they can still live a life of meaning and purpose, not in spite of their child's death, but because of their child's life and learn how to live it in a way that honors the life of their child. And the so love well they still have. For exactly. So it sounds so like you're well working on another book right now? I am. Uh, I'm working on a companion book to Grief in the Workplace, which because I said that one is uh, steered towards the employer, this one is steered towards the employee. Oh, uh, okay. That'll be important because we, we want, just as you and I talked about uh, early on, what are good things for employees to realize when they go back to work. And mm -hmm. some of that is going to be based around you know, some of our gender-based issues because one of my early platforms, you probably remember from the bereaved parents conferences, is the, the diversities in between males and females yes. when it comes to processing and expressing grief emotions. We're yes. different animals. Guys, when we go back to work, we, we have a tendency to go back to work with you know, ego and, and some things that might get in the way and, and might retard our, our healing just a little bit because we do have to heal. Um, like I said, I went back to work and tried to control my environment. I needed to control. Uh, I didn't have control over John dying, but I had control at work, right? Right. And, and that's some things that we have to look out for because what are we doing? Are we, for some people, returning to work quickly like I did might be very therapeutic. 
for me, it was a way of complicating my grief because my emotions are going to come out. Mm-hmm. But if I retard them now, they're just going to come out later much stronger than they really had to initially. Right. Yeah. And for a lot of us, what is, uh, helps us process our grief for some of us is a distraction to work through the grief for others. Yes. And like we said, the emotions are going to come out. Okay. It's just, if we put them off and put them off, they are going to get stronger and they're going to come out on their own without you being able to control them. I kind of, if I can give you a little visual, and I put this in my first book also, one of the chapters talks about emotions, which I think actually are a, a sixth sense. I think we wouldn't have survived without the processing of our emotions. Mm. But our emotions are kind of like a stream that's running through a forest. You know, if we dam it up, you know, and, and men have a tendency to dam up our, our little stream of emotions. What comes in has to go out. Yes. Okay. And if it's emotions that come in, emotions have to come out. Air comes in, air comes out. Water comes in, water comes out. Everything that comes into us goes out. If we dam it up, it backs up and it kills some of the flora and fauna inside of us, right? Mm -hmm. And then we get that great torrent of a storm, such as the the loss of our child or the loss of a loved one. And it breaks that dam open because it's just too heavy not to, right? The pain is too heavy. Now it's spewing that stuff out there forward. And not only does it damage what's inside of you, but now it's damaging what's on the other side of you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. That's a great illustration. So it, it's something that has to come in. Everything that we take into our body, and I'm not talking about waste. We take in food, forget the waste part of it. We expel that back out through energy or what have you. The air we take in, the water, the food, everything we take in comes out. You can't block the emotions from coming out. What we have to realize as men is that we are not the external creature that women are. We internalize our, our emotions. We actually have, and you can look this up, I promise you it's out there on a on a psychiatrist's website, men actually have more emotional responses every day than women do. Interesting. But we, we internalize them. Mm-hmm. That's how we do it. We don't externalize our emotions, but we do get to be, uh, uh, you know, grumpy little moody sons of guns, <laughs> don't we? That's right. because and they're also the protectors and the providers. And so all that comes into factor too. We could just do oh, absolutely. a podcast just on this, couldn't we? We'd if you go back to the Serengeti, that's how we <laughs> developed. We, we went away to hunt. And many times we were hunting animals that could actually kill us if we didn't kill them first. But we had to hide in mm-hmm. bushes. We had to be stoic. We had to suppress our fears. When we faced marauders coming into our village to take over, we had to suppress our fears and be manly. Uh, there's many things that, that were pre-wired to be. And it, it's the same thing on the, the female side as well. I mean, females, when men went away to hunt, females gathered in groups and that's in the gathering group for protection. But that's why today females are far more social than men are. You and I know we don't have to go back on studies. You can tell me what's the percentage of women at a national conference for BP USA, oh Compassionate Friends, oh. the ratio of women to men. Oh my goodness. It's high. I'd say 80, 90% even. It's, yeah. it's men, high. men aren't social animals. maybe right uh, we don't gather in social groups like women do now keep in mind we talk about these you know th- there's always going to be 10 to 20 percent of any gender who is completely opposite of you know what right, we think right. typical man or woman should be I, I go to conferences all the time in, in my workshops uh invariably some guy will raise his hand and go i cry like a baby and my wife never cries and it's hmm. like well you're still okay it's right you know, you're, yeah you're just at 20 percent who's opposite of what the the typical is mm-hmm. right? right but it's, it's it's fun to look at the differences in between men and women actually it can be kind of fun just to 
to make people realize. I had a real quick one. I had a workshop where uh, a young Latin individual, and I say Latin because he brought it up. He says, by golly, I'm Latin. He says, I'm the one who's supposed to take care of everything. And she has problems and, and she won't let me fix her problems. And I said, well, bud, you're never going to be able to fix her problems. Right. She doesn't want you fixing her problems. I don't care what race or nationality you are. She's a woman. She does not mm -hmm. want you fixing her problems. She just wants you to <laughs> shut up and listen. <laughs> right. So true. Well, this true. time has gone by so fast. I, Too quick. I just appreciated this conversation. And yeah, we definitely have a lot of topics we can come back and talk about and circle around oh, again. And do. that would be yeah. great. So, um, Ron, how can people connect with you? I've got a website out there, uh, and I'm on Facebook and gosh, YouTube and, and Instagram and all that too. But everything is under my name, R. Glenn Kelly. It's the website is rglennkelly.com and Glenn is with two N's. Kelly's only one E because I'm too lazy to put the second one in there. So it's <laughs> rglennkelly.com. And I use R. Glenn Kelly because my name being Ron, I also write, and we won't talk about it now, but I also write some uh, fiction books and I mm. write them under, I write them under Ron Kelly. Gotcha. So I wanted to differentiate in between the two. So it's not that I wanted some super secret name. I wanted to use R. Kelly, but that name was already taken out. And then I figured it probably wasn't a good idea to use that. So, okay. Um, well, we'll also put that in the show notes. And uh, <laughs> so people can, if you didn't catch it, if you're driving or whatever and you didn't catch it, just go to the podcast show notes on gpshope.org, click on the podcast episode, and we will definitely have Ron's website on there as well. Please so, do. Ron, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I have to believe that anyone who listens to this got something from it that so. can use and, and give them whatever they need, both working and we talked a lot about grief in general. So thank you so much. No, thank you. It was an honor and a privilege. Thank you. And now it's time for the birthday segment. We have four this week. I'm going to start with Beth Simmons Marsh. Her birthday is June 12th and she is forever 58. There is Joe Luzo. His birthday is June 18th and he is forever 17. Tony Positeri. His birthday is June 18th and Tony is forever 38. And then we have Alyssa Tyner. Her birthday is June 19th, and Alyssa is forever two and a half. So thank you for allowing us to share these birthdays with our listeners, and our hearts are with you to the families of these four, and we celebrate the day that they came into this world along with you. I would love to announce your child's birthday. If you go to gpshope.org slash birthdays, there will be a form there. You can fill out the information and submit it, and I will add your child's birthday to the list, and they will be announced the week of their birthday. I don't know if you're aware, but the reason we're able to do this podcast is because other bereaved parents who have been helped by GPS Hope 
have given financially so that grieving parents like you who are coming along behind them can receive help and hope as well. So I would just like to invite you to sow financially into GPS Hope so that others who find themselves on this same journey behind you will receive the same hope and encouragement that you are receiving. And every dollar helps. So if you would like to help in this way and keep us going, you can go to gpshope.org slash donate. We are a 501c3. Your donations are tax deductible. So just consider that and we would really appreciate that. Be sure to check the show notes for links on how to connect with Ron. I'll put a link in the show notes also to find out more about the bill we talked about to add the loss of a son or daughter to the Family Medical Leave Act. You'll find a link for submitting your son or daughter's birthday if you didn't catch that just a few seconds ago. If you do want to partner with GPS Hope financially to help us reach more grieving parents, there'll be a link there in the show notes as well for that. And all of those links that I just talked about can be found at gpshope.org slash podcast slash nine. So it's the number nine because this is episode nine, gpshope.org slash podcast slash nine. And I want to close by reminding you to hold on, pain eases, there is hope.